0: And we um, start a new study today. Last week we were in between books. And when we're in between books, it's hard for me to figure out where we're going to be uh, that week. And so I I have to be thinking all the time. And so it's hard to do. I don't know how people who do topics can um, figure out what's going to be happening next. So that's why it's great to be in uh, books and so therefore you're bound by whatever happens to be next. So that's where I feel comfortable with. But uh, last week we were uh, doing something a little bit different and we did a message that uh, dealt with all the problems in the world and all the cultural problems uh, as far as the world having problems with Christianity and Christianity being the only way. And uh, many people have uh, difficulties with that, don't they? So we talked about that, about Christianity being distinct. Uh, The doctrines differ so much from any of the world religions, and there's no room for compromise for Christianity as far as what our uh, doctrinal truths are about who Christ is and God is and sin and man and those kind of things are important. Um, But the church seems to compromise. Uh, It has throughout the history, but... uh, I think it's it's compromising today as a whole. And sometimes it can be no different than what the world is. And uh, it is tempted by all what the world offers. It's pressured sometimes. The pressuring comes in, so therefore uh, we kind of succumb to that. And sometimes it seems like we're losing the war. And we titled that uh, last week, Is Christianity Losing? Well, of course not. It never has and never will. We know the back of the book, don't we? We know how it ends and we even know how it goes in our lives. But it appears that way. But if you were to look, look at the world, look at our country, whether uh, they're teaching evolution in the schools or they're teaching uh, homosexuality in the schools, it's becoming quite the lifestyle, uh, all the sexuality, pornography, um, the way that the education system is, the way that the political system is. And it seems to be hoodwinking the church sometimes. And instead of being the salt and the light, we have uh, not done that, and uh, we have not been turning the world upside down as the early church did. So you can say, what has happened to the church? It's trying. It wants to do. Uh, the things that are right, but sometimes it just doesn't seem to be making that power. We live in a postmodern world, and it's hard to get on the level with people who say there are no absolutes because the moment you say something that's absolute, then they can say their truth exists too. So that makes an effect uh, on how we present the gospel. And this has happened to the church for 2,000 years and all throughout the Old Testament time period. The same kind of thing goes on, maybe in different uh, ways and different masks. but from the message we had last week, what we're going to do now is hook that up with this new study that we'll have uh, in 1 uh, Corinthians. And uh, as we start this book, I think it's a book that we did, I'm not so sure how long ago it was, but it might have been 20 years. It didn't seem that long as I thought about it, But I know it hasn't been in the last decade. If I am, correct me. You guys that have been around that long, help me out. But uh, uh, anyway, it's it's going to be new to me. Um, Sometimes uh, I I had a lot of tapes from way back when, but I don't think they're all there anymore. But I'm just going to see when that was. But um, I think when we look at 1 Corinthians, we're going to see how current that book, that letter that Paul wrote, is to where we're at right now in 2010. And we look at these present conditions as far as the morals of the cultural age is concerned. It is like reading a newspaper. At times we live, uh, resemble that very ancient age of the Corinthians. You wouldn't think so after all that time. It's kind of eerie how relevant this book is. The whole Bible was relevant, isn't it? When we looked at Exodus, that was even older, wasn't it? 3,500 years ago. And we saw that that is in time and in step with right now. And it always is. That's God's Word. It's like we, we go back into a time machine here and we see that we were just like them. We see the same kind of culture. We see that it's shameful. We see that it's immoral. We see the materialism. We see the arrogance and pride. The pluralism of religions. My, how they dominate uh, our nation today. All kinds of marriage problems. People don't even know what marriage is anymore. Is it to a woman? Is it to a man? Uh, from a man's perspective. Uh, uh, people suing each other. You see that in this book. Divisions and schisms in the church. My, and you can think of all the different denominations that have come down through the, uh, the vein in those... 2000 years, especially during the Reformation, there was basically um, one line of thinking or two, you could say, and then the schisms really happened and Reformation did great things. But as a result of it, people um, thought and they came out with different doctrines on different things. And sometimes it almost gets confusing and you almost throw up your hands and say, what is it? Why is it there, there are so many different disagreements even with people that I line up with and I know they're Christians? <laughs> and it seems like everybody has their own belief. But that challenges us all to seek the truth out, seek the Lord, and realize that there is not uh, a uniform church because that was tried before and that didn't work, did it? That was the Roman Catholic Church, basically, and that was a worldwide church. And everything was uniform. Everybody was to believe the exact same thing whether it was right or wrong. And so therefore, I I would much rather be in a situation where uh, we have truth as our standard and there be disagreements. But um, the church at that time was addressed by Paul. We see that he rebukes, he admonishes these Christians. They're from a pagan city, uh, this Corinth is in in, um, Greece, but they were transformed. They were transformed to a way that would honor God. So what the Word of God does, as Paul writes this and sends it to them, it brings sinful people to repentance. He has to admonish them and he has to bring them to repentance and desire to live out the truth. And that's why the church, one of the reasons why the church is still existing today. It's, Constantly going through things that we know to be right and wrong but we have to be reminded constantly there's so many things in our lives that would like to go off the path and so we need to be directed back in there so that's why we focus on the truth here that's, that's what this is all about whether it be our prayers whether it be in our singing whether it be in fellowshipping that's all part of the church and uh, the preaching of the word of God and uh, communion all those things it's all part of worship hasn't changed hasn't changed, but we're going to see these lessons here are timeless. And uh, so, very close to where we're at. We're going to look at the, uh, the introduction of the book. Uh, a lot of our time will be spent on that, and then we'll get into the first three verses. Um, first of all, let's talk about the city of Corinth, because when, when you read a book, when you study a book, you want to have an idea of what it's about. Why was it written? When was this written? You know, what, what is the writer trying to get across here? Who's it written to? The Corinthians. It's the city of Corinth. Uh, you'll see that uh, up on the map, it's in this area right in here. And it says Corinth here. But that's, it's right there. There's uh, this gulf and then there's this gulf. The Gulf of Corinth and the uh, Saronic gulf. It's right in the middle. All of that Greece, the north to the, the south. Uh, it's a fascinating place. Really interesting because it's very strategic. And if you look at that map and you really start seeing how thin this is, you'll find out why this is so strategic. Why is this place so important? Why, why this Corinth? It's a little town today, but it was a major city at the time of Paul. Uh, it played a huge role in the Roman Empire, uh, a great role. Greece is two parts there's a north part, there's a south part and right there in that little middle part is about four miles wide it's really skinny and you can imagine okay you've got a boat here and you want to go this way you want to head west well a lot of people would have to go all the way around this telecomese area and go over there if you like what you're heading for rome that's how you have to travel that's an extra 2,500 miles, something like that. Uh, 250 miles, I'm sorry. But that's, that's a long time, you know, in a boat. But uh, that's why it becomes really important because you have two seaports the surrounding gulf, the seaport here, the seaport there, and Corinth is right in the middle. Two miles away from one gulf, two miles on the other. You have ships coming in, and uh, if you're going to Athens, Well, you're going to go through Corinth. If you're going to go to a lot of other areas and you're in that area, all traffic goes through Corinth. Now, that is important because that made it a major trade center. So if everybody's going through there and it's a town, it's going to grow rapidly and it was invested in by um, Caesar and put a lot of people there from all over the world and had uh, slaves brought there and... Roman citizens and it became uh, quite a place north and south traffic east and west traffic goes through there uh, what they did is they took since it's only four miles wide they started taking these ships putting them on these rollers and they would rolled the ship across the land for four miles to the other side that save you 250 miles and a very treacherous trip around that area is very dangerous. So wouldn't you want to just go four miles on some rollers and get across there? So that is what's happening in Corinth. You're going to have a lot of people coming in there when you know that hey we can cross through here. People in uh, uh, their traveling and their ships, there they are. There's a canal there today. They don't roll those across. matter of fact, I think Zach might have a picture of a canal. There there is right there. And uh, that's what they use in, uh, in this area to, to get across. But it actually took hundreds of years to complete that thing. You can imagine. If they first started out, they were doing shovels, trying to do that. And in the meantime, they kept using those rollers. So a real place of importance in the world, a huge place to be. Paul set up a church here. You have people come from all over the place. Another thing is, uh, I'll ask you this question. How many here follow the Olympics when, when they happen? Okay, you know, it started out in Athens, right? That's not too far from Corinth. So in Greece, you have two famous games that are happening. Everybody knows the Olympics. Everybody knows Athens, and they have the stadium there. But there were the Isthmian Games. That's that Isthmus. And they would have the games in Corinth. Well, guess what? How many people go to the Olympics? Thousands and thousands of people go to the Olympics from all over the world, right? Same thing happened then. They came from all over the known world to those two games. So it was famous for its sports, its entertainment. Now, think of the world today. United States, famous for its sports. It's entertainment. It has a draw, right? All the, the, the great things that are going on. We, we are a, a, a society that's really oriented on entertainment, oriented on sports. I love sports. The only thing is it's become an idol. People worship that. That's how they consume themselves. Same way with a, whatever way, any kind of entertainment. So this city of 100,000, a major tourist attraction, public interest, economic activity. Now, this city actually had an Acropolis. Do you remember Athens? And it had its Acropolis. set it on there where the, the ruins and, the, and the, the temple there. Well, Corinth has an Acropolis that's called Acro-Corinth, and it's about 2,000 feet high. And that's where people would go if they were attacked at, uh, at that area in Corinth. They would go up to the, to the big hill, uh, the big mountain there, and jutted up so far. And so it helped secure them. But there was another thing there. It was You might have seen some ruins. It was the temple of Aphrodite. And if you remember, Aphrodite was a Greek goddess of love. And this temple has a thousand priestesses. And they were prostitutes, actually. And what they would do is they'd come down from that Mountain and go down into the city of Corinth at night, every night, and they would ply their trade. And that is called worship. That is some of the things that would be going on in Corinth. Some of those people, many of those people had been involved with that kind of worship when they came in to the church. The culture was a place of debauchery. If one did what would... Uh, other people would do. It'd be all the evils that the city had to offer, and they had a lot. It would be like a Las Vegas. It would be like um, New Orleans of our times. Put those two cities together, <laughs> whatever. All the things that the world could offer, they had it there. It was a vile city. Yeah. They had way too much money. They had way too much luxury. And they had way too many indulgences. And that's how they live their life. If you were to be from Corinth, you'd be known as a Corinthian, and you'd say, uh, somebody would ask you where you're from, and uh, you'd say Corinth, and they'd go, oh wow, that's, you, really, you live there? Ooh. Um, it actually became, when, when one would get involved in lewd and vile acts, it was to be known to Corinthianize. And that's how it came known as all over the world. Corinth was a famous city, wasn't it? And isn't it interesting that Paul wanted to establish a church there? Why would he want to do that? As evil as it is, well, they need it, don't they? Uh, needs the light. One scholar writes of the Corinthian culture as something like this: a postmodern pragmatism of the market, with its related devaluation of truth, tradition. Rationality and universals didn't matter about truths, didn't matter about traditions and and such. They were postmodern at that time, if you want to use that word. So it was very corrupt. The prosperity that they had and the vice, the evils that they had, were side by side. Prosperity, evils. Do you see similarities? With our culture today, with our country, do you see some of the same things we're right there? It's very evil. We need to keep this in mind. That's the church that Paul is writing to after he had been gone, I believe, like a year and a half. The church was so messed up by what was going on around in that city in Corinth that they were really no different than the surrounding culture. They were not the salt and the light. Paul had to write to them. He had written a letter already. That letter we know is uh, later on in, in Corinthians. We'll see that there, would a, there was a letter they'd written. That didn't become in, uh, as part of the Scripture or the canon. But 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians did, but the other letter didn't. But uh, all the things that were happening there in the church. Now, how did the church start? Well, Paul had a lot to do with it because on his second missionary journey, he hits Corinth. Do you think he had ever heard of Corinth before? (laughs) Absolutely. If you've heard of Rome, you've heard of Corinth. Paul finds and founds the church there and he runs into Aquila and Priscilla. Have you heard of them? Uh, Met there in Corinth. They were solid Christians. They were Jewish Christians. Paul had quite a ministry there. In Acts 18, and why don't we turn there. We haven't even read in Corinthians chapter 1 yet, have we? And here we are turning to Acts. Acts 18. And um, as we do a lot of the introduction this week, I I think this is very important to read this part. This is where it all starts. Now, just to set this up before verse 1. I want to tell you where he had been. He had been in Philippi. That's in Greece. Not too far from there. He saw some women worshiping by the river around that city. They worshipped. They became converted to Christianity. Paul gave them the gospel. Paul and Silas later were arrested in Philippi. Do you remember the Philippian jailer? So he was arrested there. He was later chased out of town as so often that happened. And he went to Thessalonica. Do you remember that city? Yeah, there was actually an epistle written there, wasn't there? And he was run out of there. So then he went to Berea. And everybody's familiar with the Berea. Bereans, right? Be like the Bereans. right? We want to be like them because they checked out the Scripture and examined it every day. That's where we want to be. Right? They, they were hearty souls there. They were diligent. Then along came those pesky Thessalonians as he was in Berea. And guess what happened? They chased him out of there. He's running all over Greece. Has to run out again. He goes to Athens. And they have all sorts of philosophies there and uh, they're doing their debating and Paul gets his chance, brings forth the Gospel after it's all said and done. Uh, that was at Mars Hill. is gives that great sermon. There wasn't much success there at all. And so kind of, he kind of left discouraged and he wound up in Corinth. This is where we pick it up at 18, verse 1 in Acts. After these things, after all what we just talked about, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue. There was a synagogue in Corinth. Every Sabbath. And persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. It's good news, isn't it? But when they opposed Him and blasphemed, He shook His garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And He departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. All right, catching the uh, the idea here. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. The ruler of the synagogue is right next to Paul as he's staying there and he becomes converted to Christianity. Oh my, this is great. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. And now you have something rolling here. God has His mighty work of saving souls and using Paul here. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent. Well, why would Paul do that? Why would he be silent? Everybody's coming to the Lord, right? The truth is being there. The Lord is telling him uh, it's not always going to be this easy, Paul. For I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city... And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. When Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul. It's not the Gentiles rising up. Who is it? It's the Jews. And brought him to the judgment seat, the Bema, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. So they take it to the courts. Right there in Corinth. And so it's to be handled here. It's going to be handled by who? Gentiles. But the, so the Jews can't do it by themselves. Sounds familiar like even way back in Jerusalem under their Roman government with Jesus. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. You're not giving me a reason. But if it's a question of words and names and your own law, look to yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. He doesn't want to get involved with this. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Get out of here. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Don't know for sure why uh, they beat Sosthenes. The, the Greeks probably had reasons for being hostile to him. Uh, I think they're taking their hostility out here that they had on the Jews on him that, that had even got this far. Who knows? Um, they may have been just angry at, uh, at this leader of the Jews here or, or at the Jews, so it comes up against Sosthenes. Uh, It's interesting about Sosthenes. Hang on to that name. Hang on to that name. We'll we'll get to there in a moment. Uh, You'll have Apollos at Corinth. you have Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Apollos was quite an orator, quite adept at delivering. Boy, he could speak. You you can imagine uh, he had heard maybe the philosophers and how they spoke. Well, he is one who is adept at preaching the Word of God. And, uh, of course, his doctrine was sharpened up. Aquila, Priscilla... This is about 55 A.D. when this is uh, happening here as as he's writing this. What are the reasons for this this letter here? Why did Paul write? I think it's really obvious. There was a spiritual decline of the church. Martin Lloyd-Jones has three uh, reasons for it. One of them is carnality. Just the the carnal people, uh, they had an antinomian look. Um, That's against the law. I mean, they would just do things... And it it didn't matter to them what the law said. They acted more like uh, Corinthians than they did Christians. The cultures that were uh, surrounding them kind of formed them into that kind of behavior. Another uh, reason would be pride. They were very prideful people. You're in Greece. You have philosophies. People really took in wisdom. The Sophia, the wisdom, that's what they pursued. Uh, So they took in Christianity and saw all that was there. And what happens to new Christians sometimes, they get so uh, into it that they can also become very prideful, very conceited. They had a pride in knowledge, and we'll see that, a whole chapter that Paul has to deal with on that. This should always be on our minds, that we are to be um, humble people. Uh, we, We should take it in our thoughts that we can become prideful very easily. See, we can bring this into application even as an introduction, can't we? Uh, We can learn lessons from this. We need to always be humbling ourselves. We know that we have nothing in and of ourselves anyway, But we, uh, we need to learn and find out what we really don't know. How many times have you heard that or said it yourself? The more that I read in this book and study, the more I find out I don't know, right? Isn't it the truth? There's so much here, but... Uh, it reveals that, my, this is, this is a great God. You know, who am I that He'd even give me this truth? Uh, a third one that Lloyd-Jones had was unbalanced spirituality. Very unbalanced. They were a gifted church. They might have been the most gifted church that ever existed. And, uh, of course, at that time, we, we know that uh, Paul had to write chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14, even 13. They were gifted and they knew it. You better believe it. They knew how gifted they were. They were consumed with the showy gifts. The things that people could see. So they'd take notice. And so everybody thought they had to have that. Every gift. They had an unhealthy interest in the spectacular things that were going on at that time. So Paul writes for those reasons. We know he writes doctrine in here, even though there's a lot of admonishing on how to live the Christian life. Uh, one of the greatest doctrines in all the Bible is found in Corinthians. Uh, that's in First Corinthians 15, where you have the resurrection. And of course, chapter one talks about, um, or and chapter two, chapter one and chapter two is about revelation of God uh, to uh, His people well let's uh, without any further ado turn to 1 Corinthians 1 now after I babbled here for half an hour I hope that helps set it up a little bit though as as we go through the letter now if we can kind of draw upon that you might be very familiar with that kind of introduction but it's it's good to know that here is some of the background that we can draw from now as Paul writes this. So we put ourselves into the time of Paul, into how Paul was looking at it then, and how the Corinthians were looking at it. Um, Paul starts off like this. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Paul starts off the letter like any Greek would start off a letter. He puts his name at the top. How unique! How unique! We put our names at the end of the letter. But you know what? It's interesting whenever you make a call to somebody and say, Hey, Joe, this is Dennis. You, know, you identify who you are, right? Especially if they don't know who it is It's calling. Sometimes people call you and they expect you to know who you are right off the bat. And go, who is this? <laughs> Doesn't it drive you crazy? They're talking to you and you know, it's, it's they act like they just talked to you yesterday. Probably did. I don't know who it is. Anyway, we make it known who we are. And that's what Paul does in these epistles. And why don't we do that in our letters today? Well, if you did that in an English class, they would probably strike you out. I don't. Know. <laughs> anyway, Paul is establishing the authority that he has. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's an apostle. He wants them to know that he is an apostle. They know that. He'd been there before. He's identified his calling as an apostle. He was called to be an apostle. He didn't make himself an apostle, did he? But God called him to do that. And it's of Jesus Christ. Do you think he's doing it for his own glory? So they'll say, Oh, that Paul, he's the greatest. Well, he is an apostle, and he's better than anybody else, you know, and all that. Well, they do. They start, He's better than Apollos. or Paulus was better than him. But what he's really saying, what I'm writing to you here is really worth paying attention to. Paul, an apostle. This letter has authority. He's not just writing a letter to be saying, Hi, how you doing? Just want to stay in contact with you. Oh, by the way, I heard about a few sins. I mean, this is coming right from from God Himself. Right? He's saying, I'm an apostle and you need to listen to this. So, when we read the scripture, we need to listen to God, don't we? Every time we pick this up, we really need to listen. He's got a message for you right here. That's really important. You need to listen to this, Paul's saying. I'm about to say, what I'm about to say right now is coming from Jesus Christ. Whoa. Would you listen to that? He is, you know what he is? He's an ambassador, he's an envoy. He would be um, an emissary, a messenger, straight from Jesus Christ Himself. You remember Moses in the book of Exodus? How he delivered God's Word to the people? Well, Paul is doing that here as he's bringing that forth to them. He is an apostle and the word is apostolos. And that's how we get our English word, apostle. And it means one who is sent, sent from, to... Um if you look in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, another, little, another letter that he wrote. He says this, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. Now that's our message. Did you know we are ambassadors? and we are representing God Himself, when we give the Word of God out, we have authority behind us. When I stand up here, I in myself do not have authority, but I have authority when the Word of God is proclaimed. It's not my own authority, but it's the very authority of the Word of God. I'm proclaiming what His truth is. That's important. That's why preachers need to preach with authority rather than just saying, hey, you can take this or leave it. just a suggestion here. No, it's from the very authority of God Himself. Uh, We don't suggest. We uh, are listening to what Christ has. We are emissaries also to the lost world. We have the good news, the gospel to take out. They need that. They need to know they can be reconciled to God because they're enemies. They need to know that they can have peace with God, right? Well... John MacArthur came up with five reasons Paul says this. And he says in a lot of epistles. There can be more reasons. There could be less, I guess you could say. But one of them is that he is equal to the twelve. When he calls himself an apostle, he's not less than Apostle Peter. And really, we're all human beings, and there's not one that's greater and one that's less than another. But the position that God has appointed them. Is uh, very important. There's not <clears throat> 150,000 apostles running around today or back then. There might have been some, you know, all people are sent out. But in this sense, he's saying, I'm from that office. We know what Judas did. He was an apostle, wasn't he? We know that he went out and committed suicide after he uh, was. Uh, Involved with the treason uh, with Jesus Um, when he killed himself there's only 11 and now how can you go around calling them the 12 when you only have 11 so Peter in the book of Acts chapter 1 says we've got to uh, bring in another apostle how are you going to do this well they they had two that they had in mind they wound up choosing uh, Matthias and he was chosen to be the 12th one according to Acts chapter 1 and that that's good. What the apostles are, they're a group that is the very foundation of the church. They are the ones who led the early church into the truths of God. They're, they're the teachers. They taught doctrine. They had the voice of authority. In Acts chapter 2, we see that the people gathered around the apostles' teaching or doctrine every day. They gathered around that. That's what they're teaching is absolutely correct. They taught from the Old Testament, then they taught new things that hadn't been revealed in the Old Testament or or they hadn't seen, so they, they point that out. So that was really important for the people to have that. Um, what about Paul? You have 12 apostles now. Why does he come? Well, he's one that could be called a Johnny-come-lately or a Paul-come-lately. We know that when... He was on the Damascus Road to go out and persecute Christians that the Lord appeared to him. And then the Lord appointed to him. Those are two major points in what an apostle has to be. You couldn't be an apostle if you hadn't seen the risen Lord and you hadn't been appointed by Him. And that's where we're at as far as Paul is concerned. He saw the resurrected Christ, and he was appointed to be an apostle by Jesus specifically. And Paul was not even boasting. Because if you look in 1 Corinthians 15, this same book, in the resurrection chapter, in verse 9 and 10, here's what he says. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, it was I or they, if it's them or I. So we preach, and so you believed. Matter of fact, if you pick up in verse. Seven it says after that he was seen, you know, he's seen by the five hundred, and then seen by James, then by all the apostles, and then he says in eight, then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Years later he becomes an apostle, and this, with the same authority. That means he gets revelation straight from God, and he writes it down. He can do that. He's an apostle. So that's the claim that he's doing. I'm equal with those guys. Another thing he's saying is false teachers. False teachers have challenged Paul and said he was not an apostle and he always has to defend his apostleship. When he writes 2 Corinthians, he is constantly showing that he is truly an apostle. And he uses different methods to get to them of what he was. And he reminds them he was the one that had started the church there. But there's false apostles going around saying he has no credibility. He has no authority. And he's not really real. And so he went through that kind of persecution. So he was discredited by many people all across the land. So there's a couple of reasons. He's equal to the twelve and then is challenged by the false teachers. Well, another thing he wants to show, it's God's power and wisdom that operates through him. Uh, You're in 1 Corinthians 1. Turn to verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God, the wisdom of God. If He's sent by Christ to be an apostle... He has that same power, that wisdom that's coming from Him. Look in chapter 2, verse 4. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words. It wasn't that He was so eloquent that He attracted the people because of His great oratory skills. But it was of, uh, with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So God's power, God's wisdom. He had a relationship to Christ. He had that wisdom and He had that power. He wants to ensure them that He is who He is saying He is. He's representing Christ by being this Apostle. The churches had gotten bad information from the false apostles. Other people were tossing it around that he was a fake. Really, wasn't anybody? And and remember, a lot of them are saying this Paul. Don't trust him, because he used to persecute the church. He killed Christians, and that's kind of the thing that's going around. He always constantly has to to defend that apostleship. Is he establishing his authority when he says an apostle? Yeah when he says that they know what he's saying another re- reason is that uh, the very existence of Corinth is because of this apostle he wants the readers themselves as he writes to this church at Corinth to be convinced that he is writing with authority and it's not just on his own wisdom and knowledge but it's enough proof that he's sent by God and a fifth reason that uh, was given as he was sent by God to be an emissary is by his will. Look at verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Through the will of God. The reason he was in that position, God put him there. He's not uh, saying he's an independent agent out there working on his own, is he? God put him there. He was sent from the very throne room of heaven. The throne room of heaven sent him to do this work. He came in God's power, God's authority. It's not his own. So what are the duties of an apostle then? Well, pretty easy. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 17, we know the first thing. They need to be preaching the gospel, right? Here it is. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. It's the authority of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. To preach the gospel. That's one thing. Then if you turn over back to Acts, early days of the church. Acts chapter 6, verse 4. This is the famous chapter on... Uh, deacons or servers in the church. Seven were chosen to serve and the ones who were the apostles were to be doing the studying and praying. Uh, Verse 4 says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That's really what the apostles and what preachers today really are to be focusing on. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. A lot of people have a lot of other duties, civic duties for the pastors to do and you do this and you do that. And we see it laid out right here. It's to prepare that Word of God. To minister that Word of God and be in prayer. And that's the that's thought. They, they gave themselves to prayer. They gave themselves to the Word. Those are three things there. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, we see that here's another thing that uh, apostles were to do. And He gave Himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So what were they to do? All these gifts, whether it be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to equip the saints. Why? So they could have a lot of knowledge? No. No. It's so they can edify the rest of the body of Christ. That's what we're to do with each other. We're to edify each other, build each other up. We all have different gifts. We all have different things that God has given us. And when we get a little piece of this person over here who we are joined to, then we learn a little bit more about Christ. We are edified. We're built up in this great big temple that is being built up, Ephesians 2. Um, I think that's really fascinating. Um, but they were to equip the saints, edify them. And so we do it too. Um, that's four duties of the apostle. Another, a fifth one is Second Corinthians 12, 12. And this would be a third aspect of testing whether one's an apostle. Somebody comes up to you today and says, hey, yeah, at our church we have two apostles. And you go, really? And you start asking yourself, let's see. Huh, wonder if they saw the risen Lord. I wonder if they hadn't walked with the Lord. Uh, what was another reason? That they'd be called specifically by Christ. Well, internally, some of those people would probably say, Yeah, I did see the risen Lord. I saw him in a vision. He came at my house last night, and he talked, and he sat there right in front of me. And they might use that. But we still wait for Christ to come back, don't we? He hasn't come back yet. He left. The the Spirit of Christ is here, but Christ in His body, there's no reason to come back until that time period. Um, I've heard of visions and dreams and things, but I think it is very confusing to people. Um, I think we have to be very careful. We need to test them. Here's another thing. 12.12. Here's another. Here's a sign of an apostle. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So an apostle has to be able to do these things. You have a Benny Hinn running out there, running literally out on stage with his white jacket and throwing it around. I don't know if he calls himself an apostle, but he definitely gets revelation from God and comes up with bizarre ideas of what Scripture is about. I don't want to spend all the time talking about all that, but there are many people that come in that vein saying they are an apostle. Well, you find out that those signs and wonders and miracles that Benny Hinn is doing are from people, who, people he already knew of. They're fakes. People have gone out and tested these people out that were supposed to have been lame and couldn't walk were in wheelchairs. And then they got up and come to find out as you have interviews that they never were in wheelchairs. You hear all sorts of stories, all of these claims, and there never have been any... like uh, resurrections of the dead. There have never, ever been any solidified as far as uh, Benny Hinn's ministry is concerned. Benny Hinn, you can put them all out there. Uh, An apostle has to be able to do these things, has to be seen by people and known. Jesus didn't do His work in the dark, did He? We know that His work, those things were miracles. And the apostles did that too shortly after Him. The real reason that that was done that way was that it showed that their word was truth. They were the writers of Scripture and that backed up who they were. The same with Jesus. Uh, Today we look at the foundation of the apostles and Christ being the chief cornerstone. That's found in Ephesians 2. i to be talking about that tomorrow night in the Bible study. But once you have a foundation, I've said this many times, you don't put a foundation up on the third floor again. You already have the foundation laid. That's the Word of God. The words of Christ. And the temple, the building, just keeps on going up. Foundations laid it's on the word of God we don't have new revelation today and if we do then we have to keep on adding to the book so how do we know what if we have it all or not so when somebody says here's what God told me you have to be very careful in what they're saying it might be something that's in here and maybe they're, they have an idea that hey maybe this this could be something but to make a claim that God told me uh, very 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 careful People say that all the time. How do I know that God told you? This is how I know. It's through His Word. And I think that's very important to know. That's why the basis of the, the, uh, the apostles, that foundation is, is so key to hang on to. And I know in the times that we live in, a lot of these odd things, within 100 years, these things uh, about all these signs and wonders and miracles, um, you would hear of those occasionally. It would, but it would be a people that were outside the church. Maybe working inside the Roman church a little bit. A lot of miraculous, supposedly, things happening. Maybe demonic things. But Anyway, that's why I say the apostles um, are, are key to what we have today. Sosthenes, do you remember why I said hang on to that? I imagine you probably already caught it. Sosthenes was the guy that the Gentiles beat in Corinth. Well, Paul says, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. He became a Christian. I wonder if it was shortly after the time he got beat by his own people. Sosthenes is believed to be a, another Christian. He's introduced with Paul. He was kind of secretary for Paul. Uh, in writing this letter, Paul identifies him. Paul dictates what God had given. And Sosthenes penned it. Now, God does not dictate to Paul. There, uh, he's using his personality, the very interest he has, and still yet it's the very inspiration of God. And how that works is, is tremendous, isn't it? To be able to use a person and him to be able to use his kind of thinking, his education, all the culture and everything. Still yet, it's very the very Word of God that's coming through Paul. Sosthenes pins it down. He knew the Corinthian situation very well too. Sosthenes, called me an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, as they're writing now back to the, the Corinthians. Uh, he, he's that synagogue leader. And uh, he was chasing to get, you know, in this whole thing. So the people in Corinth, they know who he is, as Paul identifies him. They know the Sosthenes. What a conversion! This is powerful. Okay. We finished verse 1, we move to verse 2. To the church of God. Which is at Corinth? The church of God. This is God's church. It's not the Corinthians' church. It's not Paul's church. It's not Sosthenes' church. It's not Apollo's church. It's not Aquila? Priscilla? It's not their church. We call this Grace Community Church here, but we really belong to God. We're the Church of God. It's not the Church of Dennis Helton. And please don't ever refer this to my church. I get highly offended at that, and there's a reason because biblically it's not my church. It can't ever be church of mine. Uh, but people have referred to the uh, well your church, and I don't like that. It's not biblical. If you're if you're in this church it's 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 the church that we belong to a particular church it's ours. And so therefore it's God's church, right? He owns the church, the church of God. If it if it becomes my church, then we are in sin. We are in error. We you know this the whole authority here is based upon who he is. Uh, I have a big responsibility of taking care of it in the sense that I'm a shepherd. And that's what God has given me. I I am to feed the flock. It's not mine. it's, It's God's. But also, as I have my responsibility, we all have jobs to minister to other believers and to take the good news to the lost. Do you guys believe that? Yes it's not just a pastor's church and focused around that pastor but it's around everybody to take that good news out there uh, to be equipped or to be equipped with the word of god how we think is going to matter and how what we take to them and so uh, we want to disciple them we want to bring people in so we can disciple them they're not going to know everything that you might know you can't expect them to be at your same level if that be the case You have to realize that they might have things to learn, or they might know more than you. But the thing is, or they might be, they might have a lot of things that you don't have, you have a lot of things they don't have, and even though it seems like you're rubbing in some grain, you've got to realize that, hey, these are people that God created. Not only that, they are people that He has put together in this body. Do we understand that? That's how. God's church works. And so that is very important and um, how we interact this church, the called-out assembly at Corinth. And this next phrase is incredible. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, Those who are sanctified, Hagios. This is the position that they're in. Despite the fact that this is a sinful church and they have sins that need to be repented of, they are sanctified and what? Called. Called to be Hagios. Sanctified and saints are the same word. I think this is incredible. No matter all the sins that they have, he says you're holy. Because the word hagias, sanctified, saint, same word, holy, to be set apart. And he's not saying, Hey, you were holy, and now you're not so holy. He says, You are holy. You are called to be that, no matter what they are or doing. Holiness, in this sense, is not a matter of works to get salvation. Holiness is done by God, though, isn't it? It's His church. He works the holiness in it. Otherwise, we're going to be doing all sorts of holy things by how we wear our hair, how long it is, how short it should be, uh, what kind of uh, dress or jeans or clothes. All of a sudden, people start making rules on how uh, people should dress and look and act and Whatever they're doing out there, and they start saying, This is what a saint is. (laughs) Well, the thing is, if they're Christians, they've already been made holy. Although there is the ongoing sanctification. But first of all, he starts with this position. Look in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. He's calling them holy. Call of all things. You start right off the bat, after knowing all their sins and finding out about this, and you say, You're holy. Wow. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call their brethren. There he's calling the, the uh, people who have been saved, he sanctifies those. And then he says, We are being sanctified. We have been, we are being, right? Chapter 10, verse 14. That's just, that's just fact, showing uh, past tense of uh, what has happened on into the future tense. 10, 14 says, For by one offering, He is perfected forever. Look at that. Perfected forever. Those who are being sanctified. He is working a work in us. He has done it and He is doing it by what He did at the cross. Based upon that. Acts chapter 26, verse 18. We are saints, folks. Verse 17. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. This is Jesus speaking to to Paul and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The ones who are sanctified. The ones who are holy. The ones who are Christians. The ones who have been set apart. Robert Rayburn, after Robert Rayburn, uh, wrote this. I'm going to read this if you don't mind, a paragraph here so. Christians and pastors especially have looked at their churches and their people so often have sunk so deeply in the very sins that Corinthian Christians indulged. Bitter divisions over this or that, people regularly failing to live up to their calling as Christians, even sometimes it being hard to tell what difference there is between their lives and the lives of pagans around them, except perhaps that they go to church regularly. And it's easy in such times to despair to wonder if God has disappeared, if his grace has been withdrawn, and if he's no longer doing anything at all in our corner of the world. Just to comment on that. He's saying sometimes it doesn't the church doesn't look so good. It doesn't look like God is there, it doesn't look like his grace is there. But you see what he's building up to here? And he goes on. But then We remember the church in Corinth and all of its ugly sins. That was a church of real Christians. We know because Paul says it was right here. That was a church highly favored with miraculous demonstrations of the Apostle Paul, uh, of the Holy Spirit and gospel power. And yet it had the same problems that we find today in our churches and in our hearts So we think with a sigh of relief that perhaps our sins and our failures do not after all mean that we're not Christians or that the Lord has deserted us. I know that I have turned to the mess that was the Corinthian church more than a few times in my ministry to remind myself that when the spirit of God is at work, it is by no means the case that everything will be as it ought to be even in the lives of those who are genuinely reborn and who are sincerely followers of Jesus Christ, we may be a mess in this way or that, but then living churches founded by the apostles themselves were also. So even when there's a mess in the church, the whole body of Christ all the way to the local church, what is he saying? They're real Christians. God is working His work anyway. Now, what we find in the Bible is absolute honesty. Man could have written this Bible telling on himself and his sins as graphic as God does. You ever thought about that? Moses wouldn't have written maybe some of the things that he did. Abraham. How about, well, of course you have Adam. Noah. Noah and his sins, his drunkenness. Abraham and his lion, Jacob and his deceitfulness, David, adultery and murder, Samson, Samson, a very good one there. Boy, he didn't really have much, anything good for him except for the strength that he had, but he was a man of faith, Hebrews 11 says. Wow. Solomon, King Solomon. Hmm. Remember the 700 wives that he had? Holy men of faith, yet they were sinners. Now, does that give us credence that we can go out and sin and live the way we want? Romans 6. Uh -uh. But what we do see in 1 Corinthians is real life. It's not colored over. It's not airbrushed. It's the way it is. What you see is what you get. Life is seen with all of its disappointments. In our lives we have struggles, we have failures, but we are very much under the supreme authority of our Commander Jesus Christ based upon what was done at the cross. And that's where we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as it says in Philippians. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, Miracles. A new nature is being not merely made, but made out of the old one. We live amid all the anomalies, inconveniences, hopes, and excitements of a house that is being rebuilt. So he takes this house analogy. How many here have ever done any kind of remodeling at all? You guys have done it, right? (laughs) We all know what that is. Man, when you're remodeling, sometimes it's a mess around the house. You don't even want anybody to show up. Matter of fact, you don't even want to show up. It's terrible. I mean You have wood maybe just laying all over the place. Everything is strung out. Um, everything is getting dirty. And, I mean, this is an inhospitable place to live. Dust is everywhere. And you even have, uh, like, uh, holes in the wall maybe where windows used to be. You have bare floors. Maybe you're getting ready to carpet or whatever. Um, all the furniture's all covered up. You have plastic hanging all over from the doorways, and tools are scattered out everywhere. It's a mess. You can't stand it. Well, there's a picture of the Christian life. Because God is renewing His work in His children. And He's always remodeling us. And sometimes it doesn't look very good at all. And sometimes we as Christians are very judgmental in some others' houses. (laughs) I'm talking about their own living. When we need to realize we're being remodeled too. That's the picture that we have in 1 Corinthians. We have to learn patience about others, about ourselves. There was a great preacher said about 1 Corinthians. He says, it's not for a pattern of the machinery of a church we ought to go back to that early time. It's not that pattern that we want to be like, right? But for a spectacle of fresh and transforming spiritual power that God was working there. The power of the Spirit was working in the very early church. There was fresh emotions swelling up. And it was good. But you see what happens when you have those fresh emotions. Things get stirred up, and all of a sudden, our own pride and sin gets stirred up. Um, Even the vices of the young church were the irregularities of what abundant life is. Even though they had these vices, it was still irregular. It wasn't a thing that they really, really enjoyed doing and kept on doing, because that would not be a mark of a Christian. But we see how God uh, works in there. If you think about the problems you find in Corinth, um, and then you see Paul's letter, we see also the Spirit of God's power working. Was there conceit that they had? Was, uh, Was there a sinful enthusiasm that they had? Yeah. When you had the awakening in England... Problems began to surface. He had a great revival happening there. Then they had a, the Great Awakening over here in America. Same kind of thing I had. People were being saved, saved by the grace of God. When those kind of things happened, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield would attest to that. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God that was there was acting and there were visible manifestations of how God was working in those lives. But some people took advantage of that, and there was uh, then an unhealthy interest in the spiritual phenomena. And uh, so now all of a sudden, people could be rolling all over the floor and saying God was doing that. If you were to listen to Edwards and Whitfield, they would have told you that there were unbridled enthusiasms that was happening. But the Spirit of God had uh, started that in a good way. But uh, we see how those things can happen. I, I think we uh, we see and realize that we struggle. And our lives are not necessarily neat and tidy and orderly, but there is a moving of the Spirit of God who we don't see. That wind just blows. We don't see that Spirit that's working through us that causes us to be born again and also to live that. But we we struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we need to keep saying... Stay awake. Stay awake. Watch out. No one was sleeping in the church in Corinth. They weren't sleeping. (laughs) They had sins. Israel sins. They were dangerous sins. They were terrible sins. Sins that had to be rooted out. But the the sins that happen to Christians today, but the grace of God works powerful in lies. We will never escape sin. Not in this world, not in this life. But we have to deal with sin, don't we? We have to work with that. We deal with sins of life and not the sins of death. Those sins can be worked out for the good. They were called by God, first Corinthians says here, by individually and also corporately. They're the called. The church means that. The called out ones. Called to be saints. Call in every place. Call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Both theirs and ours. mark of a Christian is that they call on the name of the Lord. Then he says, Grace to you. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the last verse. Grace is the favor that comes from God. If you look at it in the Greek, very favor. Peace, you would think almost the, the, the Hebrews said shalom so often. Hebrew person, the Jewish person, would definitely be thinking of that kind of greeting. The Greek person would say, uh, would be thinking of, of favor. But uh, both. Uh, you have grace, and because of the grace, then you have the fruit, which is peace. Because of grace of God, we have the fruit that comes from it. We're, we're at peace with Him. No more war, war with Him. So we live in this culture. We take on this. But the transforming grace is there. We want the gospel. We want the transforming power. And we must battle to the death certain sins that surface in our own lives. The gospel must penetrate into the culture that we live in. Let's do it. Father, we thank You for this Word of God You've given us. We thank You for this example. A church we know that had many sins. We thank You for Your grace, for they were Your people. And we will one day meet them we know that we can easily condemn that particular church, but we realize where we're at also. We battle the same stuff. Thank You for Your Holy Spirit. Thank You for Your Word that convicts us and that we'd be conformed more to the very image of Jesus Christ. In Your Son's name, Amen.